6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Jude, verses 9 and 10. Now, some people theorize that prior to his appointment, Satan may have had that role because of the anointed cherub remark in uh, uh, Isaiah 14. But the point is, in any case, at this stage, Michael is the singular archangel, only one. His name means he who is like unto God. So the word Michael means. It's a very, very high name. Those of you that may carry the name Michael have a very proud name, very exciting name. It's interesting that Michael's name is the opposite of Satan, which is adversary. Now, the first reference to Michael is in Daniel chapter 10. And uh, just to refresh your memory, we won't take the time to go there, because if we do, we'll spend too much time on it probably. But in Daniel chapter 10, you might make a note of that. It's one of the spookiest chapters in the Scripture. Daniel is led to fast. He's praying and fasting for 21 days. And at the end of 21 days... He gets a visit. Or maybe we should look at it because it's important. It's too good to ignore, and yet if I do it from memory, I'll probably screw it up. So let's uh, uh, skim through him. In Daniel chapter 10, it opens up in the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia. He is uh, in prayer, and uh, uh, he was in mourning, that is in, in, in uh, sackcloth and ashes and fasting and so forth, for three full weeks. And it describes that. He gets visited, verse 10 on. Behold, a hand touched me and set on my knees, upon my palms and my hands, and so forth. It says, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved, understand the words I speak to thee, and stand upright, for unto thee am I now sent. He says, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand and to chasten thyself unto God, thy words were heard, and I am come for thy words. In other words, he was dispatched to see Daniel 21 days ago, and he was held up. Verse 13, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. Now, the prince here is not the king of Persia, i.e. Darius or Cyrus or whatever. This is a spiritual prince behind the scenes, an invisible power that was obstructing this messenger on his way to Daniel. Now, that's a, this is one of those glimpses that gives you creeps because you're going to, before the chapter's over, you're going to discover there's apparently a prince of this type behind every major government. Every major era, every major, there was uh, over every, is there a prince of the United States? Apparently. And uh, we infer that. We don't know that. We infer that from the whole structure here. But it's interesting that this prince is one of Satan's emissaries, the ruler of the darkness, the ruler of this world, if you will. He said, withstood me one in 20 days. But what allowed this messenger to make it through this battle? He says, but lo, Michael... And it says one of the chief princes. That's, un, that's, that's not correct. It's the first of the chief princes. The translation's unfortunate. He is the singular senior of the chief princes. So again, the word prince here is applying an angel. There's an opposing angel, one that's uh, 
focusing on Persia. But Michael, one of the, the, the chief prince, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. And then he, he comes, and he's going to go on, and then he's going to explain how he's going to give give uh, Daniel a, a, a series of visions. In fact, chapters 11 and 12 are really the result of this visit. But um, uh, he goes on here before the chapter ends here. Verse 19, And know a man... Uh, Greatly beloved, fear not, peace unto thee, be strong, yea, be strong. And when he had spoken unto me, I was strengthened, Daniel says, and let uh, let my Lord speak, uh, thou hast strengthened me. And verse 20, then said he, knowest thou why I come unto thee? And now will I return to fight the prince of Persia? And when I am gone forth, lo, the prince of Greece shall come. Many years after Persia, the next major empire was the Greek empire. And here already we see a prince of Greece is going to rise to power. Verse 21, the last verse of the chapter. But I will show thee that which is noted in the scripture of truth, and there is none that holdeth with me in these things but Michael, your prince. Now here we see Michael introduced first time by name as the chief, the, the first of the chief princes, and his specific identity is Daniel, he's your prince. Daniel personally, not exactly. We'll discover as we learn about Michael that he appears to have the mission to fight for God's people collectively, specifically the nation Israel. You almost always see him associated with Israel. Another angel that goes by name is Gabriel. You'll notice if you study Gabriel carefully that his role is almost always messianic. Gabriel showed up in Daniel 9 to give him the 70-week prophecy, but that was messianic. Gabriel shows up with Mary that we're celebrating in the Christmas season. That's Gabriel. Again, his mission is, is uh, messianic. That's the main idea is there. Now, oh, another place that you see an image of Michael, a very important passage, is Revelation chapter 12. Oh, before we do that, I'm sorry, before I get you out of here, turn to Re Daniel chapter 12, as long as you're this close, verse 1. I want you to pick up something in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, is quoted, a phrase of it is quoted by our Lord Jesus Christ, in Matthew chapter 24, when the three, when the four disciples, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, come to our Lord privately and ask him some questions, he gives them a, he gives them a prophetic briefing that's two chapters long in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 24 and 25 in Matthew, uh, 12 and 13 in uh, in Mark, and uh, uh, 21 and 22 in Luke the so-called Olivet Discourse. But in that, he uses a phrase that all of you know, but you, he, he draws that phrase, if you will, from Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, which says, At that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince, who standeth for the children of thy people. The children of thy people. That's Israel. <laughs> and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time, and at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. Now it's interesting that Jesus uses that phrase, there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was to this time, nor ever would be again, but for the elect's sake there would be no flesh saved, and so on. That phrase is drawn from Daniel 12. Michael shows up again very prominently in Revelation chapter 12. We've looked at this several times, I think it behooves us to look at it again. Revelation chapter 12, which describes these personages that surface. There's a, a woman, and we've reviewed this before. The woman is um, clothed with the sun and the moon and her, on her feet and upon her head a crown of 12 stars, and she's with child and so forth. 
Many people try to make that woman the church. That's wrong. She's Israel. She's not the church for lots of reasons. She's well identified from Genesis. And we won't get all that tonight. You can get that from the, the Revelation tapes if, if that's unfamiliar to you. Uh, but she, she is, in effect, Israel in the sense that it started with Eve from Genesis 3.15 on. She's the woman bringing forth the man-child, the deliverer. Now, the opposition to all of this, verse 3 and 4, is, the red, is, the, is um, a red dragon. We don't have to speculate on the identity of the red dragon. He's, he's identified in verse 9. The great, great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called devil and Satan, who deceived the whole world, was cast down to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. We've looked at that before. And uh, his tail, verse 4, uh, his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to be delivered to devour her child as soon as it was born. She brings forth a male child to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and we all know who that is. Now we get down to verse 7, we see uh, this is now going yet so far it's past. Verse 7 is future. And there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And uh, it goes on. And I won't fall into the uh, trap of trying to explain all of Revel uh, Revelation chapter 12 tonight, but want to highlight that the key adversary here again, the head of the host, uh, the senior angel in charge, is a guy by the name of Michael. Commissioned to fight on whose behalf? Israel. Now, another synonym for the great tribulation period that we so glibly talk about in prophecy is the time of Jacob's trouble. So it's kind of important to recognize that this tribulation period that we're talking about is really a, a focused tribulation on Israel. And that's when Michael goes to, to bat. Now, We've looked at Revelation 12 before. We recognize several things out of it, not the least of which is Satan's ambition and focus and goal and strategy is to attempt to thwart God's plan. And uh, so we have Michael as the agency to, to, to go to, to battle here and Satan as, in, as an attempt to thwart him. Satan seeks to thwart God's program and Michael is God's agent appointed agent to overcome Satan's purpose. So that's the biblical background. We could spend more time, but those are the key, I've, I've highlighted the key places where Michael and Satan show up. So far, so good. We're not troubled now with June talking about Michael and Satan contesting, but where we stumble is, what is this about the body of Moses? Why are they, either one of them, interested in the body of Moses? There are over five hundred Old Testament references to Moses, but only one reference to his body. And so you say, what on earth is going on? Well, the first place to start, I guess, is to turn to that reference, which is Deuteronomy 34. It's almost at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, and it shows up in verses 5 and 6. There's a preamble, we look at this a little bit, but Moses is scheduled to die. Moses has his ministry interrupted. And he does not get to go into the promised land. Because of the, uh, the, the, the children of Israel listening to the ten spies back in Kadesh Barnea, they didn't listen to Joshua and Caleb who had the good report. They listened to the other ten. They lost their nerve. They didn't cross over when they had the opportunity. So God says, okay, you're going to wander in the wilderness for 38 years. Nominally 40, but precisely 38 years. 
And so it's at the end of that period, but Moses, and we're going to examine that in a minute for other reasons, Moses blows his mission. He doesn't do what God tells him, and God puts him in the penalty box, has him superseded by Joshua. Moses is allowed up on the high hill, Mount Pisgah, or Nebo, it's the same area, to get up there and see, look over the Jordan and see the promised land from a distance. He can see the promised land, but he never, he's not allowed to enter it. And he dies. And this is what's recorded here, verses 5 and 6. Now, there's all kinds of scholastic debate. Did Moses write this prophetically, or did some other scribe add it to the—I mean, here it's in the five books of Moses. I thought he died. Well, if you really need to talk about we're trying to reach to create problems, either way, if you did it, I have no problem that Moses wrote this by inspiration before it happened. That's an approach. Or some faithful scribe added this as an appendage. I can't make a big thing one way or the other. I'm not going to get into that debate. But the point is, in verse 5, it says, So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab. This is across the Jordan. It's on the, on the east side. In the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. In other words, the Lord had said this was going to happen earlier. And he buried him. Who buried Moses? God did. Now, right away, that gets your attention. I'm always interested when God personally doesn't, you know, does it without going through an agent of something. I love you like Noah's Ark. Who closed the door on Noah's Ark? Noah didn't. God did. I love that because I always like to ask questions. Could Noah have gotten out? I don't think so. You know, and I, I make a big thing on eternal security out of that. You know, you want, if you want flaky grounds, that's as flaky. Uh, but... Anyway, here God, for some reason, God personally, if I can phrase it that way, appears and he buried him in, the va in, in, in a valley in the land of Moab, over and against Beth Beor. And no man knoweth of his sepulcher unto this day. Strange remark. God personally takes care of Moses' body, buries it. The sepulcher is a secret. It's not on the mountain, it's at the, it's at the valley, at the base of the mountain, presumably, somewhere around there. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was not dim, nor his natural force abated, and uh, so on. And the children of Israel wept for Moses the plains of Moab 30 days, so the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And then it goes on, Joshua takes over, and that leads us into the book of Joshua, and on it goes, and they cross over, and they go into the conquest, but con into the conquest of the land. But Moses didn't. Now, from this singular passage, there's all kinds of traditions, and it is widely believed, or was at that time, for lots of reasons, that not only, uh, obviously, Moses, you know, the, the Torah tells us that Moses was buried by God, but also out of this background came some traditions that Michael and Satan fought over Moses' body. You find that in some interesting places. The Targum of Jonathan, I'm sure all of you are diligent readers of the Targum of Jonathan. It's an obscure book that I wouldn't have gotten except by, you know, some footnotes, but this is a, a you know, a Jewish uh, commentary. Uh, Targum of Jonathan on uh, Deuteronomy 34, 6, that the grave of Moses was given to the special custody of Michael. Ancient Jewish traditions speak of a contest about Moses' soul at the time of his burial. Now, these are traditions. And, uh, but the, these traditions appear to have a root of truth because Jude, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, makes reference to it. So don't misunderstand me. We're not basing this on the basis of some tradition. I'm just letting you know that there was that tradition. It was widely believed among the Jewish scholars of this, that there was a contest. Now, we know there was a contest because Jude tells us that, which raises, really raises another question. Why 
did God, why does it record that God personally buried the body of Moses? That's, you know, I, don't, I can't think of any place else in the scripture that that is spoken of that way. Why is the place of the sepulcher a secret? Why is Satan interested in it? Now we know he's cursed to eat his food is what? Dust to the ground and you can get into a big spooky thing if you want is what happens to the body and, and so forth. I won't get into that tonight. Why is Michael then dispatched to oppose? Now, if you start to put together the various, and there's been many speculations about this, you'll find that they fall into two essential ideas or groups of ideas. One is what might be called, what I call the fetish risk. In other words, had Moses's body and or the sepulcher been known or findable, it's highly likely that they would become an object of worship. And none other than Josephus makes reference to this. In his Antiquity of the Jews, volume 4, 8, verse 49, for those who want to track it down, he points out that Moses was so venerated by Israel that uh, if they had awareness where his sepulcher was, it would become a, a fetish, a place to worship. Now, this would be encouraged by Satan, because Satan's desire is to deceive and thwart God's purpose, and uh, a, a form of false worship would be his ambition. We find him doing that very thing in Revelation 13, verses 3 and 4, where he has a false worship of a leader. Satan's whole goal is false worship, a counterfeit situation. We're going to find out a little later, we're going to get into Deuteronomy 18, where it talks about a, a prophet being promised that by association the Jews look to as Moses, and I'll come back to that. Uh, so that, that's very reasonable. Now, to give you an example of where this kind of thing happened, you might turn with me uh, to 2 Kings 18.4. In 2 Kings, we have a king by the name of Hezekiah undertaking a reform. He's one of these kings, one of the few kings that really took his spiritual opportunity seriously. And in verse 4, it speaks about um, how he removed the high places and broke the images and cut down the idols and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. Really? If, if you recall from Numbers chapter 21, God sent a plague, but he also pro provided a remedy. And he had brought, Moses made a brazen serpent, put it on a cross, and held it up. And everywhere that looked to the serpent, the brass serpent, was saved from the plague. And uh, those that didn't died. A lot of them died. And we know because our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ makes reference to that incident in Numbers 21, because he says, As Moses raised the serpent in the wilderness, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up. He was a model of Jesus Christ. I mean, Jesus Christ was modeled by a brazen serpent? Yes. Brass speaks of, it was the metal that was capable of handling heat, so it spoke of fire. Brass is, this, is, a, is a Levitical symbol of judgment. And, of course, a serpent of sin. So sin being judged is a model of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was made sin. That's exactly what the epistles Paul tells us in his epistles. He was made sin for you and I. A hard idea to get, a, get across. Now, whatever happened to that brass serpent? It served a purpose in the wilderness. Plague went away, but he got healed. What happened to the serpent? They saved it. 690 years later, they're worshiping it as an idol. 
so that Hezekiah has to put an end to it. It says that he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For unto those days the children of Israel did burn incense to it, and he called it Nehushtan, the brazen. So uh, that's an example how some of these things can become fetishes. The Shroud of Turin is an example. Poor example, perhaps. Noah's Ark. They're finding bits and pieces of it, and they become big deals, you know. So that's one theory. You can build a whole case on that. But there's another idea that I'd like to share with you, and that why is his body relevant? And that is because I think, I personally believe, there's a future role for it. And that role for it, you can say, gee, well, it's a resurrection body. Yes, I guess so, but I don't pretend to understand the physics of what's involved, and God seems to have felt it important enough that he took, took care of it. I'd like to talk about two ministries in the Old Testament that were interrupted, that were incomplete. First of all, uh, when we, if we go to John chapter 1, we have the story of John the Baptist. And we discover that John the Baptist had quite an active ministry, so much so that the temple heavies sent out a delegation out to the desert to find out what was going on. And in John chapter 1, in verse 19, it says, This is the witness of John, the Jews, the Jews, that means the leadership of the Jews, sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? Now you'll discover there's three people they thought he might be, and he was none of these three. Because I am not the Christ. John the Baptist did not make any pretense of being a Messiah. He made that clear right up front. Verse 21. They ask him then, What then? Art thou Elijah? What a strange question. Not really, because the Old Testament, the last two verses of the Old Testament, we'll look at that in a minute, predict that Elijah is going to precede the second coming of Jesus Christ. He says, I am not. John the Baptist says, I am not Elijah. There's some confusion because Jesus makes a remark about the spirit of Elijah, so to speak. And it causes a lot of confusion. But John the Baptist right here, there's another place I'll show you, he is not Elijah. He came in the power of Elijah. He came with a similar kind of mission, but he's not Elijah. It says, it says, are thou that prophet? That's the third person. That's the prophet of Moses, spoken of Deuteronomy 18. The leadership at that time felt that this pretender out in the desert could be claiming to be one of three people, the Messiah, Moses, or Elijah. And he said, I'm none of those three. Well, wait a minute. That's kind of interesting. Where does he get the wheel? You mean these people are expecting? Yes. You might turn, if we will, to the last two verses of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4. It's only a six, it's the last chapter of the book of Malachi. It's only six verses long, the last two verses. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Oh, not before his first coming. John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah, but that's another thing. There's a very specific express promise that Elijah will come before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. If you observe Passover with the Orthodox home, you'll find that there's an empty chair left. For whom? Elijah. Should he show up? Interesting. Take it seriously. He shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Promise of Elijah. 
Now, there is a passage in Matthew eleven fourteen where the Lord says, if you could accept it, he could have he was Elijah. But they didn't accept it. It's a contrary to fact reasoning. And in, in Matthew 17, which we'll look at later for another reason, uh, he, makes a, he makes it clear that he is not, John the Baptist is not Elijah. He came in the spirit of Elijah and in a, in a royal sense, but not, not, not in the literal sense. John the Baptist was John the Baptist. Now, I'd like to turn, and uh, so we have Moses and Elijah being expected. That's kind of, that, that intrigues me. You might turn to Numbers chapter 20. I'd like to explore a little bit as to what Moses did to get himself in trouble. In, in Numbers chapter 20, we have an incident starting about verse 7 that merits our study. Today. Dead. Now, so you don't get confused. Back in Exodus 17, there was an incident where Moses was instructed by God to strike the rock and water came. Recognize there's two different in incidences. The first time the rock was, in, he was instructed to smite the rock. Okay? This is a different incident. Verse 7, the Lord said unto Moses, Take the rod and gather the assembly together, thou and Aaron thy brother, and speak. Underline the word speak. Speak ye unto the rock before their eyes, and it shall give forth its water, and thou shalt bring forth to them water out of the rock, so thou shalt give the congregation and their beasts drink. In each case, they needed water. In this case, in the previous case, he was instructed to smite the rock, and he did, and it, water came. Who is the rock? Jesus Christ. Authority is 1 Corinthians 10. We looked at that before. Verse 9, so Joseph took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him, and Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock, and he said to them, now notice what Moses does. He's getting, you know, Moses is a neat guy. He did a lot of right things, but this is one place where he's on an ego trip. Now, it's good for us to look back and watch this. I don't want to speak casually of a guy who was in most incredible human beings in the Old Testament, but here's a case where he blew it. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jude. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.